We have a special guest here tonight, my friend and our director of missions, Barry Joyner. Barry, raise your hand. Let's give Barry a hand. Barry is really a good guy, a really, and he's an admirer of watered-down week preaching. Some of you are saying, well, he's in the right place tonight then. <clears throat> Be careful because of where we're going tonight. Be careful. Then the last few months in Memphis, Tennessee, a situation in a church, it, it made the headlines, at least in that the region of Memphis, the Commercial Appeal newspaper is a, uh, a major newspaper in Memphis and in that area. Uh, and regarding the Second Presbyterian Church there, if any of you, do you know, any of you know what I'm talking about? Uh, Clayton does, I know. Uh, a lady, a member of the church, a psychologist named Dr. Nan Hawks, had been brought before, or was going to be brought before the church board about being removed from the church body. She was accused of slander, gossip, causing division and bickering in the church body. And this made big news, big headlines. And one of the things you saw in, uh, on the internet and in other things was a lot of opinions expressed about how the church was handling it, what they were doing wrong, what this lady was doing wrong. And so tonight, I want us to look at that subject and try to answer the question, should you ever remove someone from your church body? A lot of opinions on this subject. You know, it's interesting, when you take a Bible book and you preach through it, you, you can either avoid difficult things or you can try to hit them head on. We're in 1 Corinthians 5, and it would be easier if this wasn't in the Bible, correct? But it is, and we're in 1 Corinthians, so we're going to talk about it this evening. Do you agree with me things made the Bible for a reason? Yes. So uh, this is important. Now, when you talk about kicking someone out of the church, it's often referred to as church discipline. Uh, it, it, the old term was being churched. How many of you are familiar with that? It's that Dorman got churched when he was in high school or whatever. That was a way of saying that he got removed from the church. He didn't. I'm just using that as an example. I think he did. But uh, it was the word church, church discipline, excommunicated. Uh, the redneck way is they got the boot, you know, uh, but removed from the church body. Now, there's, there's two extremes, I think, at least in my lifetime. Some churches, a few churches, that would be pretty quick to, to discipline people over little things and over things that, you, you know, just almost looking for a fight, looking for a reason to call somebody up and to get on to them. The other extreme is probably the extreme of the church today in America is we don't want to have to ever correct anybody, correct? And, and it's going to get worse. It's part of the politically correct world we live in that everybody is entitled to their opinion or their view. Uh, we can warp the priesthood of the believer to say, well, I can say or do whatever I want. And, and so the, 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 what we have to do is we have to go back to the Scriptures. As, as Baptists, one of our strengths has been is that we say we go back to the Scriptures, Right? That's, a, that's an extremely important strength. We don't, go, we don't go back to the church councils. We don't go back to the bylaws, ultimately. We don't go back to uh, the Baptist set of rules and orders. We go back to the Scriptures. And 
Sadly and strangely, the Bible says, yes, there is a time when someone should be removed from the church body. Now, I'm going to say this, and I think you know this is true. A lot of churches have no problem removing ministers, correct? Minister gets out of line, has a bad sermon like kicking people out of the church, and they decide that they will remove him. But, and and certainly there is a time for that, but the Bible also addresses the removal of church people. In verse 2 in chapter 5, And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and put out of your fellowship the man who did this? And then you jump down to verse 13. God will judge those outside of the church. You expel the wicked man from among you. And what he's talking about here is, is putting someone away, removing someone from something. And the context here, clearly he's talking about the church body. Now, I want to do something tonight that's going to be painful to begin with. I want to show you some pictures of some people in our church that we may need to remove. Now, you bear with me. We have another couple. Troublemaker. We just decided if we're going to remove Reggie, we were going to remove Mary C. Uh Uh-oh, Mary C. is really looking mean at me, Reggie. (laughs) Okay, now if you're watching on the internet and you couldn't see those pictures, this was a joke. If you're listening to this on the CD, I, and I hope none of you felt like I was ridiculous enough to say, well, here we go. We're going to, you know, put Clayton's picture up here and we're going to lay him out in front of all of you this evening. One of my staff members, we were talking about this on Tuesday, one of them said, you know, if someone was sitting out there and was nervous, they were going, you're going to put their picture up there, they may need to make a decision tonight in about 25 minutes. That's true too. Obviously, you know, wouldn't it be awkward for, for us to remove my wife? Can you imagine the conversation when we get home? Honey, you're going to have to look for a new church. <laughs> Uh, as far as Andy and Reggie, I wouldn't trade them for a thousand other people. A thousand millionaires who tithe, I wouldn't trade them for. Maybe. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Maybe. So a little, a little levity. We need a little comic relief when we talk about hell tithing and kicking people out of the church. So hopefully we've got that. Obviously my beautiful wife and those two men are pretty safe, we believe, this evening. Why should you remove somebody? What are the reasons that would cause you to say that someone needed to be removed from the church body? Now again, you say, why is this important? It's important because God put it in his book. It's important uh, if you take church life seriously, this is an important issue. What are the reasons that, that you should put someone out of the church? Now I'm going to give you a little family history. I had a great-grandfather. I never knew him. He died in the 40s. Grandpa Craig was what they called him, who was actually churched in the late 1800s or the early 1900s. They lived in the mountains near Mena, Arkansas, and Grandpa was asked to play the fiddle at a country dance on a Saturday night, and he did it. Now, my father, who, who uh, of course, loved his grandfather, but he said that he, he said Grandpa Craig did not have an, uh, an immoral idea. He was just a tightwad, and they offered to pay him a little money, and the money uh, drew him into the fiddling that night, and he was actually kicked out of his church for doing that. I would say that's probably not a good reason to remove someone 
from the church. But what, what would be a biblical reason? And I'm not just saying that because he was my great-grandpa defending family. I'm not sure that was a good reason. Here's a good reason. When a person is sinning in a way that visibly hurts the body. When they're sinning in a church that visibly hurts the body. In verse 1 through 4, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among the pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief? And, and have you put out of your fellowship this man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. Verse 4, when you were assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present. And he goes on and says, hand this man over to Satan. Here's what was going on. I mean, you're talking about a patent place. You're talking about a, a, a place of, of uh, moral corruption. This guy in the church now, and apparently he was uh, even a well-known person, had gone, come into a relationship with his stepmother. Now, we don't know if his dad was still alive and, or, or if, she had, if he had died and he starts dating his stepmother. Uh, in, the, in the context, it's kind of like they are involved sexually here. And we don't know if they were divorced and he starts dating his stepmother. And Paul just flat out says, God through Paul, this guy has crossed a huge boundary. The Old Testament law in, in Leviticus 18, for example, clearly says that a man should not date his father's wife. Clearly says that. Corinth was a vile place. Listen, Corinth was Las Vegas before there was a Vegas. I mean, it was a party place, a wild place, a vulgar place. And even the people in, in Corinth were shocked at this. Cicero, a, a, a Roman orator, said that that immorality like this, incest, was, was not even common in Rome. And that's like saying that's something that wouldn't happen at Hugh Hefner's Playboy Palace. That means it's bad, okay? That means that, that, that it was really bad. And the people in the church body just blowing it off. And what God says here. It's when there's sinning going on and there's not repentance, it's got to be dealt with. Now, it's easy sometimes to grab a sin like that and to identify it, hopefully, and say it needs to be dealt with. But, but folks, it's wider than just, well, if that person's not involved with their stepfather or stepmother, then it's okay. no. In verse 13, it says, God will judge those outside the church, but you expel the wicked man from among you. That Greek word there for wicked means someone that is malicious. It, it means an active harmfulness. Do you get that? It goes way beyond just sexual sin. When someone is malicious and there's an active harmfulness without a heart of repentance... That needs to be dealt with. You've got a person in your church who is known as a crook around town. That needs to be addressed. We don't want to address that. 
If they're getting drunk and gambling, we can, you know, and it's all well known now this is going on, we'll address it. But if they're a crook around town, that needs to be addressed. What about a gossip and a slanderer? Titus 3.10 says, Warn a divisive person once, warn him a second time, and after that have nothing to do with them. Here's what God's basically saying. When, when someone's sin is notorious, it's unrepentant and destructive, it needs to be addressed. Did you get that? Notorious, unrepentant, and destructive, it needs to be addressed. Now, here's a very important question. Why? Why do you address it? Why not just let it be, as the Beatles sang, let it be, let it be. Sounded kind of like George there, didn't I, Wayne? George who? I don't know, but not. uh... Back in, I guess it was the mid-1990s, a church that I was familiar with in another state uh, went through a horrible time. The church had gone from probably running about 300 on Sunday mornings down to about 40. And it was just falling apart at the, the hinges. I mean, it was just coming unraveled. And, and some of the leaders in the church went to the pastor and had a, a terrible conversation with him and basically said, you may need to leave. And I was pretty familiar with the situation, and I don't think they were wrong. I don't think they handled it wrong. They didn't say, we're going to fire you, you got to get out of here. But they said, the ship's sinking. Something, you know, we got to do something, something. Well, he, he did not like that idea, which you can understand. If, if, if that's your job, you probably wouldn't like it either, correct? And, but I don't think he handled it well. And, and he kind of manipulated things. He said, okay, we'll do a vote on whether I stay or not. But he got them to approve that to fire him, they had to have a two-thirds majority. Now, think about that, that 65% of the people could vote for him to leave, but that wouldn't be enough. It had to be 66% of the people. Well, they had a vote, and about 61 or 2% voted for him to step down, and that wasn't enough, and he didn't step down. Well, within about a month, the church was down to 10 people, which included the pastor's wife and maybe six or seven people. And they decided to disband the church. But before they disbanded the church, they went through the role and all the people who had, in their eyes, caused trouble, they officially kicked them out of the church body. That's not a reason to kick people out of the church body. I think it was vindictive. It was small. It was intended simply to to hurt people. Why should a church ever tell somebody, straighten up, or or we're going to... We're going to ask you to leave. I think three reasons. One is, number one, to get them to repent. To get them to repent. Have you ever thought about that? A good parent spanks you. A good parent sends you to your room. A good parent corrects, hopefully, to change behavior, right? In verse 5, he says this, Hand this man over to Satan, so that his sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved 
on the day of the Lord. Now, to hand over to Satan means if this guy wants to live like the world, if he wants to live a sinful life, let him go. Let him reap the the fruit of his sin. Let him experience the consequences of his sinful nature. And we'll pray that in the meantime that his loneliness and his isolation will bring him to his knees and he'll repent and he'll come back to Jesus Christ. See, Christianity is a beautiful thing. Even discipline is intended to get people broken so they can get well. Okay? Why should you ask someone, if you ever have to, to leave? To benefit them, to get them to repent. But here's the second reason. Because if it's left unchecked, it's going to hurt the church body. It hurts the church body. Verses 6 through 8, your boasting is not good. They had something really rotten going on in their church, and, and they, were, they were almost kind of proud of it. You, you wonder, and I wonder how much of that goes on today, not about sexual sin, but we just tolerate things. And we even, oh, well, that's just how that old person is. That's how she is. That's how he is. Chuckle, chuckle. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new batch without yeast. As you really are, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore let us keep the festival, not with old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with the bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. Now he's talking in a lot of Jewish thought here. Leaven, or or yeast, is used in the Bible. Uh, Depending on the context, it it can be good or it can be bad. Here, it's not good. And, you know, yeast is what makes the bread rise, which makes the biscuits rise. I had a biscuit at a restaurant in Monroe recently, and it was like, it must have been a Jewish cook because it was unleavened. There was no yeast in it. I couldn't even get the butter in it. Man, I sliced that thing in a hundred pieces trying to get the butter in it. But it was flat dough. (laughs) Go back to the Jewish custom. When they had the Passover, back in Exodus, they were to cook their bread without yeast. Literally because they they were not going to have time to let the bread rise. Just cook the bread without yeast so we can eat it and go. And they were going to sweep the yeast out of their house as a symbolic way of saying they were cleansing themselves and getting rid of the sin in their lives. And as you women know, as men know as we eat it, a little yeast will affect the whole loaf. Again, he's using the comparisons of sin, and he's saying that if you let a little sin and a little wrong, whether it's immorality or if it's a bad attitude, whether it's somebody who is a teaching Sunday school who is a known cheating drunk, or whether it's somebody who is in church every week who's a slander and a gossiper, they're going to hurt your church body. What he's saying. And he uses these feasts as the the Passover and the Day of Atonement, these things, and Christ is the Passover lamb to basically say, look, Jesus has finished it all. You are supposed to be new and different people. People without the yeast, people without the sin and the old way in you. And and that's how you got to live and that's how you got to do your church. 
But to go back to the main point, a little rotten can ruin the whole thing. You know, the whole is always greater than the part, isn't it? How many of you like your left, your left hand? Lift your left hand right now. Look at it. You like it? Would you rather a hook be there or you like what you have? I see advantages to the hook, but I like my left hand. But you know, if I went to, if I went to the, the doctor this week and he said, you've got a terrible infection in there. And in three hours, if that's not better, we're going to have to, we're going to have to take your hand off at the wrist. And if we don't, and it goes on within six hours, we're going to have to take it off at the elbow and 12 at the shoulder. And in 24 hours, you're going to be at the funeral home. You know, as much as I like my left hand, I'd let him take it off if I thought it was going to save the rest of my arm in my life. Wouldn't you? And God's saying, as painful as it could be, Sometimes you may have to lose a hand to save the body. We hope in our church we'll never have to deal with this. But it's reality. Here's the third reason. You say, why would you ever remove somebody? And, and the third reason would be because it hurts the body of Christ. It, it hurts the name of Jesus Christ. You might think of it as, as not only hurting the local body, but it hurts the, the big body of Christ. You see, lost people, lost people don't get into our theological arguments. Lost, I, I don't know, do, do you know the Southern Baptist Convention is toying with a name change? Do you, are you all aware of that? Okay. And there are people that are really, 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 really mad about that. And they're going to be really mad. Okay? But you know what? That person who is lost, that's not going to affect him. But you know what? He watches us at work. He watches us in the community. He knows if our church is a church full of people who bicker and fight and can't get along or our church tolerates things that are immoral and evil and and harmful. He notices that, doesn't he? He doesn't know whether John Calvin or Calvin Klein who they are. And he doesn't care. But he notices how Christians treat each other. And when we tolerate wrong behavior... It hurts the name of Jesus Christ. And I want to I answer one other question this evening. How do you take these steps if you have to? What, what's the right process of dealing with sin in the church body? I think it's found here and it's found in Matthew 18. Number one, somebody goes and talks to that person. You go talk to him in, in Matthew 18, I believe it's verse 15. It says, if your brother sins against you. Now, this is not talking about your, your neighbor, you don't like the way they cut their yard, they're getting grass in your driveway. This is talking about serious stuff that, that can affect the church. You go show him his fault. Maybe he's not at fault. Maybe it's you. But if they are between the two of you, If they listen, you win your brother over. You see, the first step in in any kind of making things right is is sitting down and talking with somebody. 
honestly and openly. And let me tell you, when you go to somebody to talk to them, if you're pointing your finger and you're wagging it at them, you're not communicating in a way that you're going to have good interaction. The idea here is reconciliation. Not you're going to beat them in the ground, okay? If that doesn't work and, and there's a problem, like this guy with his stepmother, and he's continuing in that, then several people go to him is what the Bible says. Matthew eighteen sixteen. The very next verse, but if he will not listen, take one or two others. I think at this point you get a minister involved. If a minister's not already involved. And you go discuss that matter with him. I think the idea here too is that the minister and the other people understand that there is a problem. A problem that's been addressed and a problem that's not been dealt with. The what do you do if that doesn't work? Well... Then it says you take them to the church. The church makes the ultimate decision on this. In Matthew eight seventeen. if they refuse to listen to them, tell it to the church. Again, you're telling it with the idea of getting repentance. And if they refuse to listen to the church, you treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, that you, you, you let them go. In verse 4 and 5, back in 1 Corinthians It says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you're having a church service, and I'm with you in spirit and power, hand this man over to Satan. You see, ultimately, the church as a body needs to make the decision. This is such a serious thing. As a pastor, I've been in conversations, and I'm sure you have as members, where when you're talking to somebody and and they're disgruntled, they're unhappy, and you, you, you might say to them, you may need to consider another place. This, this isn't working for you. It's a bad conversation, but sometimes that's the truth. Sometimes those are conversations ministers have to have with each other. But when it comes to actually removing somebody from the body, that needs to be a body decision, I believe, is what the church should do, what Scripture says. My very first church, we had to do this. It's the only time as a pastor I've ever had to do this. It was a terrible thing. But a person who had been a part of our church left the church and sat out in the community for months and just slandered everything about the church. And uh, honestly, it didn't bother me as much as it bothered some of our members. And although I was not pleased with it, Some of them went and talked to him, and they went and talked to him again. And then in the church meeting, we voted to remove him from the church body. Twenty-something years later, I still think about it, and it's tough and it's painful, but I think it was the right thing to do. But here's the last part of this, that how you do it, you always do it with love and redemption in mind. You always do it with love and redemption in mind. I'm not going to read it again. But in verse 5, it said to hand him over to Satan so that the sinful nature would be destroyed and that the Spirit saved on the last days. You know, when my great-grandpa was apparently churched for fiddling, I'm not sure the idea was with love and the redemption to get him to change. And I'm afraid even that situation when I was a young pastor, 
I, I think the people in that little church were just tired of the wrong behavior, which, is a, which was a good reason to act, but I'm still not sure that the thought was maybe he'll repent and he'll come back. God's always saying, turn around and come back. Repent and come back. God's always saying that. I, I want to ask you to do something. Put your Bibles, your purses down, men. I hope you don't have a purse. Just look at me for a second. Where, where are you on this stuff tonight? You look in your life, maybe you're new in the church world, so you haven't had, you're blessed to not have some of these experiences, but do you look back in your life as a Christian, as a church member, have you and I handled these situations properly? I'm afraid sometimes we're like the Corinthians, we chuckle about it. I don't think we would chuckle about gross immorality, but we chuckle and say, oh, that's just how they are. They just hate every music minister. Oh, that's how they are. Oh, that, that's wrong. They just don't like deacons. That's sinful. How have we dealt with it? Have we been too harsh? Have we been too tolerant? Have we been the problem? I mean, is there ever a time when you can look at your life and go, you know, if I hadn't have been in that church, it might have been better? Great news. That is so correctable. That is so correctable. And I want to challenge us this evening to make several decisions. One, if you're not a Christian, you beat the, you beat the aisle getting down here tonight to give your life to Christ. If you're here and you're not a member and you'd like to join, come and join tonight. And then I challenge all of us who are Christ followers tonight. If there's things in our past that need to be repented of, let's do it. Let's repent of them tonight. And let's all make a choice that from this day forward, with the help of God, we're going to take the high road, which is the hard road, but the right road. And how we do our church. Let's stand. As Wade leads us, I want to challenge you where you're standing or at the altar to respond to Christ tonight.